0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kylan, friends. I have a really interesting show for you today. We're going to be doing a really substantive interview about the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, Um, talking to somebody, uh, two people who are experts on it because they did a documentary on it, and we can really get into all the specifics and the nooks and crannies and how this impacted people in a horrendous way.
1: And Um, how it relates to today's insane housing market as well, and whether there are any echoes there, too. So lot yeah. of saliency for the political environment we find ourselves in today and also the specifics of sort of the housing market today and if there are any warning signs.
0: Yeah, the economy's fake is my takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> it all seems very unstable and fake and not good. Uh, but before we get into that, we got a, a couple things that we wanted to talk about Uh Tell me the thing about masks, which just came across your radar. This is fascinating. So
1: I thought this was kind of interesting. So in general, I am I actually am in support of the supposedly conservative principle of local control when it comes to how they deal with the pandemic and their students and what makes sense for their community. Okay. so that's just in general my ideology about this. In Kentucky, a state that you guys know I used to live in and that I'm very interested in the politics there. They have a Democratic governor right now, but they have a legislature that is held by Republicans. So initially, the Democratic governor had put in place a statewide mask mandate for all of their school systems. Republicans were very upset about this. And so they passed a law um, that and were able to, I think, overcome his veto because they have that level of numbers in um, the state House and Senate there. They passed a law saying, no, 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 there can't be any statewide mandate. We're going to put this kick this to the local level. Their expectation being, of course, that since Kentucky is mostly a conservative state and you have a lot of counties that are rural and, you know, tend to vote Republican, very supportive of Donald Trump and all of that, that they would probably get rid of these mask mandates, the local school boards, right away. That is not what happened at all. So all but six of Kentucky's 171 districts decided to keep the mask mandates in place for their students, which... There's a lot that's interesting about that. I mean, number one, again, I think it shows that you can, in a lot of instances, trust these local school boards to, you know, evaluate what's going on and make a decision in their community. And it makes sense to have those decisions made close to the ground there. But the other is Republicans have really bet big on these, you know, anti-vax mandates and anti-mask mandates from a culture war political perspective. And I just think that they're totally out of step with where even a lot of their own people are on some of these issues.
0: I think that um, why you see a lot of the conservative areas still having a mask mandate is because it's all theoretical and abstract until it's your kids who are in the classroom and one of the kids is confirmed to have COVID. And then all of a sudden you're like, were they social distancing? Did they have masks? Are they going to be safe? Are they okay? So, yeah, it's all theoretical and abstract until it affects you directly. So that's probably you know, why they did that. I, I It's interesting, though. I'm not sure I agree with your overall philosophy on it when you say I, you want to leave it at the local level. Um, because I was always of the like, if something's correct, it's correct. It's like saying, well, let the localities decide if they want universal health care. It's like, well, people in Kentucky have spleens in the same way that people in Alabama do and the same way people in California do. Mm -hmm. So, why shouldn't it be made at the state level or the federal level?
1: Well, on masking in particular of kids, and look, again, all the research overall shows masking works, especially if you're using N95 or the higher level sort of masks, that they are helpful in stopping the spread of the disease. But, The research is very unclear with regards to kids in schools whether that particular intervention is actually effective. Now, that could be for a lot of reasons. That could be because kids are kids, and when they have the mask on all day and they're all in the classroom together, they're pulling at them, they're coming off. All of that stuff could be the case. But the largest study on this that was conducted in Georgia, it had, like, you know, multiple tens of thousands of children involved – That was the only study that has really tried to isolate these different mitigation factors, the air filtration systems, the six feet apart, and the masks and other interventions that have been done. And that study, which, again, was the most comprehensive, didn't actually find an impact from masking children. And there is a cost for, you know, masking to require them to wear these masks all day. My kids wear masks at their school. And it's not without some price to be paid in terms of social interactions and all of that. So, on something like that, where the science is mixed or uncertain at best right now, I think in those instances, it does make a lot of sense to have basically the local school boards making a decision that's going to be comfortable for their community and make sense there for their community.
0: I mean, I was really talking more about the principle of leaving it at the local level or the state level. That is more of a conservative principle. Um, and, you know, the more left principle would be whatever's right is right. And so you do it at the higher level. So it's across the board. But to that specific point, y- you know my feelings on this. I just think Kids don't wear the masks, right? And so that yeah. would explain why there's a difference. You know, if you got I think that's
1: probably yeah, the kids case. who are
0: fidgety, they take it off They're I mean, you know how kids are. Kids are disgusting. They'll shove their hand, finger in their butthole and then put it right up to your face. <laughs> so like, obviously, they're not actually following the hygienic guidelines. And when we're talking about people who are unvaccinated and at this point they are unvaccinated. Yeah. I think it's best to have more protections than not less protections. But um, by the same token, with your story. This one is is fascinating as well. It's in CNN. Apparently, a couple was asked to leave a restaurant for wearing masks to protect their immunocompromised infant. So there's a—I don't know the name of the restaurant here. And if I did—oh, I do know the name of the restaurant. I'm not sure I even want to say it. You know, <laughs> I don't know if I—if
1: it's—I guess I could say it.
0: Hangtime Sports Grill and Bar in Texas. Uh, I won't say where in Texas would be
1: some Texas stuff, wouldn't it?
0: Well, let me give you this quote, because this is really something about 30 minutes in our waitress comes over and she sits down next to me and she's like, hey, so our manager is over there in the kitchen and he is not as nice as I am. So I came over here to talk to you. And unfortunately, this is a political thing. But our manager does not believe in the mask. He's tired of being told what to do by, you know, politics in this country. And so you're going to need to take the mask off. So in other words, he doesn't like that he's being told to do stuff. So now he's going to tell you to do stuff. He's going to tell you to do the opposite. I mean, this is like authoritarianism cloaked in anti-authoritarianism.
1: Right. Right. Which you see a lot of. Um, So uh, there's a lot of this instinct on the right to like defend people who are anti-mask or vaccine hesitant or whatever. And to say we should give them a lot of compassion. We should let them make their choices. All of don't judge them. All of that stuff but then they're very quick to turn around and like judge someone who does feel more comfortable wearing the mask and does want to get the vaccine and does have a, you know, a more sort of cautious view of the pandemic and has embraced that in terms of their life. It's very one-sided and hypocritical. So on the one hand, over here, you're like, oh, we should give them all the space and the bandwidth and be compassionate and all of that. Okay, fine. I'm good there. But then it's nothing but shame and judgment for people who, look, I mean, this family has a very specific reason in that their baby is immunocompromised. And so they're trying to make the best decision they can Mm -hmm. to keep their baby safe, like, who doesn't have compassion for that? But even just in general, people have been through a lot through this pandemic. I mean, 1 in 500 Americans has died from this pandemic. It's actually
0: now like 1 in 490 or something like that. It's just enti- it going up. <laughs> it,
1: it, right. It's entirely understandable that people would be really freaked out and be taking all kinds of precautions, even some that don't really totally make sense. I mean, masking outside is probably on us. But who cares? Like, if that's what's going to make them feel comfortable after this very difficult time— you don't have any kind of care or compassion or understanding for that position or either?
0: Well, you made uh, an interesting point and a similar point when I was watching a Ben Shapiro video and the first half of the rant is all about like, you know, hey, I'm vaccinated, but you do have to give compassion, you do have to give space to the people who are unvaccinated. It is their choice. They can make, make that choice. Be sympathetic, don't shame them. It's not going to lead to anything if you shame them. And then literally the second half of the rant was him shaming the vaccinated for not acting the way he wants them to act now that they're vaccinated. Mm. So in other words, he was saying like, the vaccine works, so if you're vaccinated and then you wear a mask, why are you wearing a mask? Stop wearing a mask. What are you doing? And it's like, well, you just, again, to your point, over here it was, come on, have compassion for the unvaccinated and don't shame them. And then it's, shame, shame the vaccinated. I'm shaming you into doing something else. Yeah. Be consistent, Yeah, consistent. I
1: remember Tucker, this was a while back, but do you remember he did this whole rant about like, This is like child abuse that you should turn Mm -hmm. people into CPS if they have masks on their kids in a building or anywhere, like turn them into CPS. I mean, it's just completely one sided and so hypocritical.
0: Yeah. So shame the people who are overly cautious. Don't shame the people who aren't cautious enough.
1: Yeah. And by the way,
0: let me just say for the record, I'm actually agnostic on the efficacy of shame. Because I think people feel generally, well, it depends yeah. on the context of the debate and who's being attacked, but sometimes people feel like, oh, shame never works, and let's make sure we don't do that because we all need to care about everybody's fee-fees. Mm-hmm. And then ha- the other half of the time, depending on who the target is, it's like, of course I'm going to shame you. You're doing something fucking stupid. So it's like, you know, I, I again, I'm relatively agnostic on what the proper approach is there, but everybody likes to... Flip-flop like a fish fresh out of water when it comes to this issue, generally speaking.
1: I think shame is actually an extremely powerful emotion. In some ways, it's the most powerful sort of, like, tool of social control. But I think the way that it—the impact that it ultimately has is very unpredictable. So sometimes—
0: Right. Like,
1: when liberals are trying to shame someone for—you they did a bad thing or whatever, a lot of—oftentimes— Sometimes that works in the – oh, I'm sorry, and I'll do better, and I'll be a better person, whatever. And sometimes that person goes, like, kind of like with Nicki Minaj recently, like, well, screw you. Now I like Tucker Carlson, you know? So it can have – it's very unclear whether if you're trying to actually get people to conform to the behavior that you want, and certainly if you're trying to win them over to your side, it's unclear whether shame is actually an effective tactic, putting aside the morality of it. Well,
0: see, but again, that's you have an answer there. I don't have an answer because it, I know personally there are times that I don't know if you'd call it shame, but it was certainly borderline shame. I'm somebody who's very honest and upfront. And I respect the same quality of people being honest and upfront. Yeah. And there are times people who have said to me on various issues, no, you're fucking wrong about that. And I'm going to explain why. And then they explain in very clear cut terms and they're persistent and they're aggressive. And then eventually I'm like, you know what? You got a point. And one could argue that what they were doing was shaming me because of the tone, because of right. how aggressive they were, and because of how uncompromising they were. Right. But it fucking worked in that instance. So that's one of the reasons why I say I'm agnostic on it. Sometimes with some people, certain personality types and certain contexts, shame works. And they're like, no, you're right. I-, I concede.
1: Yeah. I agree with you that it is highly unclear. I'm just okay. saying it's not a uniformly effective tactic. That oh, of course it's not it uniform. Of course. In the opposite that's direction.
0: That's obvious. Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. And
1: also always should be clear that like the fact that you someone was mean to you on Twitter or whatever does not mean that you get to abandon every other principle and run into the arms of Tucker Carlson or whoever you, you know. have I'm, agency. right? Yeah, you have agency. I think about the Elizabeth Warren um, supporters who were like, oh, you Bernie people were mean to us. So yeah. no, we don't so support universal health. Exactly. We're going to back Joe Biden. That's exactly. Doesn't make any sense.
0: makes zero sense. Yeah. Um, but I have to show you this video. This video is out of this world. <laughs> so I think the name, of, the name of the outlet is the recount that put this together. There's been a lot of these local uh, meetings. school, And I don't know if these are school board meetings or they're just local government meetings yeah, or whatever they are. Might but be a mix. Pe- people can come and they can, you know, give their two cents on what's going on in the world. And uh, obviously, COVID is on the top of everybody's mind. And so these hearings are largely about COVID. And, man, you are getting some real gems of people showing up and... Showing their nutsack to the world. Take a look at this video. You want to wear snot on your face all day? Fine, you do you, boo. But don't force that non-science, satanic BS on our kids. The
3: wind that is blowing through the black people, through the white people,
1: through the Chinese people, they are blowing through your veins. These are demonic entities in all the school boards of all the United States of America go back to fucking medical
0: school. And by putting masks on these kids' face, you can't identify
1: any of them. Voting on this tells me You guys support sex trafficking. The Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and the Federalist Papers, and also the Bible. And these guarantee my freedom and yours and our children's to breathe oxygen. You dealt with sheep, now prepare yourself to deal with lions. What you've done, you've poked the cubs. And no one's gonna mess with our cubs. And let me tell you something, go home tonight and take one of these spoons... And put it on your vaccination spot. Guess what? It's going to stick to you. Are you going to the state and asking where they got their science? If you're going to tell me the CDC, come on, guys.
3: Forcing our children to wear masks is nothing short
0: of psychological child abuse. On the altar of wokeness.
3: Do you have any idea what's in a vaccine? E. coli. Pig blood detergent.
1: This is not a joke. There are COVID camps. Concentration camps or something that the Nazis did. Your
2: children and your children's children will be subjugated. They will be asked, have you been a good little Nazi? Hail Fauci! God bless.
0: There's so much to say about that, but does that shake your belief in democracy at all?
1: No, it doesn't. Um, Because... Wrong answer. <laughs> you know, I always kind of resist these type of videos that pick out, like, you know, the most outrageous examples of people, obviously, who have... Some of them have maybe active mental health issues. They've fallen down the rabbit hole of various conspiracies, et etc. Um, And they can be used, they can be weaponized in a very anti-populist way where it's like, can't let these rubes like have a say in government. Don't worry, let's just trust this select, you know, layer of elites. Dr. Fauci's got this, right? Um, So it doesn't. Because I know how badly the elites have screwed things up and how wrong they've gotten things and how much, you know, they've weaponized lies to serve their own agenda. So, no, it does not.
0: Okay. So, we do have uh, disagreements here. So, I... So there's the Bill Maher line that he always uses, which goes way too far. And his is like, the American people are stupid. They're really, really stupid. And that's like that smug elitism that you're referring mm-hmm. to. That goes way too far. Uh, I don't agree with that at all. But then you have the opposite. There are many people on the left who almost like deify and glorify the populace as if they could never be wrong. Right. And I also think that's incorrect. So the way I've always looked at it is like this. I do think that generally speaking... um. Americans are kind of historically uh, ignorant. They don't know as much as they should about the history of this country or civics or any of a number of things. Um, I think in many ways they're factually ignorant. They don't know a lot about science. They don't know a lot about math or whatever, fill in the blank with any of a number of of genres and stuff. Um, but when it comes to political issues, their instincts are generally correct. So in other words, you know, the gut instinct, When you, hey, should everybody have health care in the richest country in the world? Everybody's like, oh, yeah, of course, duh. Right. Should everybody be able to go to college? Yeah. Should a minimum wage be a living wage? Yeah. Should be we, we be waging a war against Iraq on year number eight nineteen or whatever it is? No. So people's instincts can be correct. So in other words, they can have like common sense – while also being really ignorant. You know yeah, what I mean? What's
1: also th- the difference between, like, do I want to elect any one of those? By the way, one of the p- voices you heard there is Madison Cawthorn, who has been elected to yeah, Congress. That's right. Mm-hmm. So he is actually an elite. Um So do I want to elect any one of those people to Congress? No. Um, There are many people in this country who, you know, I think have crazy ideas and would do a terrible job. And that's not like a partisan statement. I don't think that the right has an exclusive hold on those people. But if you look overall... Um, the American people at times have gotten things right that the elites have gotten completely wrong. Uh, The wars is, you know, a great point. Like healthcare is a great point in that regard. I mean, just think right now in Washington, what is happening? Democrats have promised to negotiate prescription drug prices for over a decade. It has 90% support in the population and they're probably not gonna do it. So that's why I am a little bit always hesitant to um, make too much of these videos because you can always find some person somewhere saying something completely insane. But I do think that it's worth thinking more broadly about questions like, are we more inclined towards conspiracy than other similar countries? Um, What are the sort of like how did we end up in a place where someone would believe something like the spoon's going to s- stick to your vaccination spot and it's got E. coli and pig's blood in it, or whatever? Like, what led to a place where a significant chunk of the population could believe things like that? And I keep thinking about this poll, you and I talked about it, um, that found still 30% of Americans believe 9 11 was an inside job. Um, I don't believe that, guys, just for the record. But I think it's very telling and revealing about just how common how common mistrust of every government institution is in America or any like media institution is in America at this point, And some of that is justified.
0: I So I think both things are true. And that's why this is a messy conversation and a complicated conversation. And there are no easy answers. I think it's definitely true that since the institutions have lied to us repeatedly over and over, people have lost trust in those institutions. And so they, many of them end up turning to hucksters and cranks and yep. people who are just wrong about stuff. There's definitely a conversation to be had there. And a lot of the blame goes there. But also, I think the thing I said before wasn't negated by anything you you said there, which is that people can generally be pretty ignorant about history and ignorant about science and math and stuff while also having good common sense instincts, which is why, to your point... Yeah, of course. I, w- I would implement a direct democracy system like that. I wish every single state had direct ballot initiatives. One of my favorite policies would be a direct ballot initiative on the federal level, where every time you go to vote for president, every four years, you vote on the top five most important issues. Yeah. Vote on uh, you know legalizing marijuana, vote on uh, minimum wage being $15 an hour, vote on ending the wars. So at the same time that I have trust in the instincts and the common sense of, of the populace, I also simultaneously believe a lot of you are ignorant and don't know what you're talking about in a variety of different ways. Now, having said that, well, of course that this video is just all taking the craziest of yeah. the crazy and throwing them in front of us. Making, yeah, so, at
1: least just so we click on it and, and
0: it's very entertaining. It's very entertaining. Yeah. So uh, just uh, the other thing I want to say is I think some of that is performative. So in other words, I think some of those people are not
1: mm-hmm. – they're acting
0: to get their, their 15 minutes of fame. Do you agree with that? Yes. Like the one who was screaming. Yes. That guy was just, he's like, I'm going to get on TV.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's all I think that was. I think so, too. I think so, too. Or, I mean, there's potential like mental health issues are, you know, rampant in this country and unaddressed. So there could be some of that as well. Um, On the education piece, even that one is kind of complex because it's not like our education system and what kids are taught has been sort of just like a neutral fact-finding, like, let's just oh, present the not. best information. I mean, that's been systematically sort of intentionally crafted to create a certain level of ignorance about of you know, the realities in the country and who matters in the country. And very specific example of this is, uh, you know, West Virginia, and I think I've talked about this before, but... West Virginia storied labor history, the mine wars, this incredibly bloody conflict to unionize miners there, the Battle of Blair Mountain, which there's a little bit of dispute over this. But they claim is where the term redneck comes from because they tied red bandanas around their neck to recognize who were their brothers in arms. These were workers from, you know, they were the the sort of white settlers of the region. They were um Uh, African-Americans who'd moved up from the South, they were new immigrants, all like fighting together. And for decades, for decades, business interests actually got a law passed that you could not teach that history in West Virginia schools. So when you look at, you know, people let's just use the example of West Virginia, and you're like, how are you ignorant of this? Like, this is your own history. How do you not know these details? There was a systematic effort to keep people from knowing certain of these details and certain parts of our history as well. So even that piece is sort of complex in terms of how you end up with the number of people who have basic ignorance around um, the, you know, facts of our country and other countries around the world.
0: So true, um, but I would say 60 or 70 percent of the blame you could put on the system and the institutions. But I still put like 30 percent of the blame on the individuals because you it, can
1: go and learn those things. They right. are available yeah, the, to The learn. Internet yeah. exists.
0: You could go online. Mm-hmm. Shows like ours exist. And there's a million shows that are like ours that are generally trying to give people the truth as they see it as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. And then you get a fact like this. 37 percent of Americans can't name any of the rights guaranteed by the First Amendment. That's not just the system. That's your dumb asses watching reruns of Reba and whatever other shows are on. Uh, I was going to say Reno 911, but that was actually kind of funny. That was on Comedy Central. Oh, yeah. What's the one I was looking for? NYPD Blue? What am I living in? 2004? I'm trying to think of shows that that I'm I'm blanking on all the shows. Cops. But uh, yeah, people are sitting there watching some bullshit, eating some Cheetos. And I'm not hating because I do the same damn shit, but... Yeah. Like some of it is on you as an individual. So on the one hand, it simultaneously, the argument about the system and the institutions is correct, while also just don't use that as an out in every way, shape and form. Yeah. You know what I'm and also,
1: like as much as you can cherry pick plenty of American ignorance, which is evident. Also, don't forget that the elites are not only ignorant, they're also arrogant and corrupt.
0: Well, that that point, that okay. So now we. This is a good way to to end this segment too, because we come full circle to our total agreement, yeah. which is the idea that like. So to this point, maybe some elite would watch this segment and be like, "Yes, Kyle's with us." Right. <laughs> no asshole. You guys are just as bad, if not worse, for the reason you just said, which is not only are you equally as ignorant, but you're also arrogant in thinking you're not ignorant
1: and corrupt correct is the yes. is the big piece i exactly mean that's right. why i still would say and i think you'd agree with me on this one i would rather take 535 names pulled from the telephone book 100% to negotiate this reconciliation bill right absolutely. now absolutely than the, you know, corrupt coal baron Joe Manchin that we have in there The the
0: random stands. The random 535 didn't take any money from big pharma. The random 535 didn't take any money from the fossil fuel industry. Right. The 535 didn't take any money from the military industrial complex. And also, like I said, if they're governing solely based off their instincts and their common sense, they're going to make great decisions, which is why you see roughly about 80% of the time when you have a direct ballot initiative, they vote the right way. Yeah. Look, Florida is a perfect example of this. They voted for Trump in the in the general election and went to Trump over Biden, but they also passed a minimum wage increase with sixty percent. So what that means is, you know, the the more you remove the questions from the micro level and you get more macro with it, yes, things start to degrade. But when you get very specific on the individual issues, people are generally spot on.
1: Yes, yes, and that is why while there are plenty of individuals who you wouldn't want to like make king or queen of the country, do I believe in democracy? Yes. Yes, I do. Do I believe more democracy where you have less power vested in the hands of this small layer of corrupt elites? Do I think that would be better in general? Yes, yes, I do. Another great example of that is, um, I don't know if you remember that this back when there was a minimum wage debate going on. Now we've decided we're just going to keep the minimum wage at seven twenty-five dollars forever, I guess. Remember Tom Cotton and Mitt Romney proposed like we're going to have this gradual increase to $10 an hour or something in Cotton's home state of Arkansas, which is as conservative as they get. I think the minimum wage is already $12 an hour. So he was like proposing like the elite from the state pretending to represent his people right. mm-hmm. was proposing a wage that was lower Than the minimum wage that they already have. Ridiculous. There you go. Uh,
0: By the way, final, final thing. Uh, Don't just do yourself a favor. Whatever point you're trying to make, leave the Nazis out of it because it's not (laughs) like you're not helping your case. Sometimes it's very rare, but every now and then there is an area where you could bring up a Nazi comparison and it's like, okay, that's legit. 98% of the time, it ain't it, dog. This is not, there's a good example where it's not it. And the other thing is. The Republican trick of like, just call anything you don't like wokeness, and then Mm -hmm. we win. So I was with Madison. (laughs) Masks are wokeness. What? There's a pandemic going on. Masks are wokeness. It's got nothing to do with wokeness. It's basic regulation and safety.
1: Yeah. So if you want people to be able to stop wearing the mask, then get vaccinated. Maybe get vaccinated. Very simple. We won't be doing that anymore. Um, Speaking of elites getting very catastrophically horribly predatorily, criminally wrong and the American people um, knowing a lot more of what's going on and being way better behaved <laughs> uh Financial crisis has shaped everything in this country for decades. It revealed the utter criminality of many of our elites. There were no consequences to be paid. I would contend that's part of how we've ended up with the politics that we have. Um, I would contend that's part of how we end up with people, um, you know, just losing all faith in any sort of institution and their are you know, because there were no consequences, there were no real lessons learned by Wall Street. And the regulation that was put in place to respond to the financial crisis was relatively, you know, milk toast and toothless. So we're now back in a place where we have potentially, you know, housing prices are going up very rapidly. Is that a bubble or not? Hard to say at the moment. But learning those lessons from the past and how they continue to apply today, I don't think that there is a more more important project that we could possibly engage in. So we brought in two filmmakers, Patrick Lovell and Eric Vaughn. They have a new docu-series that just launched. It's called The Con. You and I have both spent a lot of time thinking about and studying the financial crisis and what happened and the way that homeowners got screwed, and I learned a lot from this docuseries, and especially it really humanized some of the the human beings who were just completely defrauded and saw their lives utterly decimated by intentional criminality of people, both in their local area, but most importantly, on Wall Street. So um, we're going to talk to Patrick Lovell and Eric Vaughn about their new docuseries, The Con. Joining us now, we have filmmakers Patrick Lovell and Eric Vaughn of The Con. Great to see you guys. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Hey,
1: thank, well, thank you. you. It's um, a so great before, to be here. oh, it's it's our pleasure to have you. I've watched it; it's phenomenal. Everyone really needs to take the time to see this thing. So we're really excited to sort of dig into that with you. Before we do that, though, I want to show people the trailer so they get a little bit of a sense of what the series is all about. Let's take a look.
3: I'm neither an economist or a scholar. I'm just an average American who lost my home. ...and very nearly my family to foreclosure when the market imploded. And I've spent almost every day since trying to find out why. Once the death settled, it quickly became clear that my story was no different than millions of other Americans. We all thought that we were alone. We all thought that we'd failed. But none of us really knew why.
0: With a gun in her hand, Addie Polk apparently shot herself in the chest... ...as deputies were knocking on her door with eviction papers in hand.
3: This dramatic increase in mortgage fraud cases was the canary in the mine. It was the warning. This was money chasing people. This was not somebody looking for a loan.
2: It was all
0: designed to maximize profits for all of the different players.
1: The person who sold you a loan made more money if they sold you a higher rate loan.
2: They were sold a lot. They're selling to their very clients these loans that they know are a disaster.
1: I lost my home, not because of money, because of fraud.
2: I don't believe Addie Paul took out the mortgage on her home. I don't believe she signed any documents they just generated all this junk, took home huge bonuses, and then when it collapsed,
3: they said, oh, not us. This notion that the financial crisis was there wasn't fraud and there wasn't crime is absolutely wrong. It's deadly. We
0: we're targeting, in many cases, minorities. We were waiting
3: for the leadership to say, go. That never happened. The investigation was suppressed. This was
0: all part of the same puzzle that was falling apart.
3: This is the largest conspiracy of lies in the history of the world. This investigation has just begun.
1: The largest conspiracy of lies in the history of the world, I think, pretty much says it all. Um, Patrick, if you could start us off by just talking about your own personal story and what brought you to um, focus so attentively on what happened and the crimes that were committed here.
3: Well, thank you for the opportunity to tell the story. Um, Crystal, I'm so blown away by what you and your colleagues have been doing. Um, your tagline, stick it to the elites. They're not elites. Um, Elites are like Michael Jordan and uh, Tom Brady, who actually win championships because of just superb talent. The guys that are at the apex of our financial system, of our legal system, of our political system and the machinery that it serves um, are completely corrupt. And that's not hyperbole. So my journey started with a simple question. It doesn't make sense. So I was a producer with Eric on a television show, but we were literally giving away houses all across the country. And I was making good money. I was low six figures. I was living the one-on-one version of the American dream. And I was into my first house. And a friend of mine was actually a broker uh, that put the deal together. And, um, you know, I'm a college-educated guy, I come from white privilege, I guess you could say, um, you know, part of the fraternity-type systems going up. And I get into business, and I'm a producer, and I know how things work. And one thing leads to another, and this television show turns out to be something Eric and I didn't understand it to be while we were working for it. And so we're literally giving away houses across the country, and the tagline was to deserving people around the country who had fallen on hard times, where we worked with their friends and colleagues and people in their community to give them a leg up in life. And the idea or the premise of the television show was that you know, they were getting a house. I think the assumption for the audience was that they were getting a free house in perpetuity because they were lucky in a draw and that sort of kind of nonsense that happens in the world of Bizarro TV world. But instead, it was a front for wire's lens. The executive production apparatus that put that together were out of the uh, Northwest. Their uh, company was called Barclays North. And they were literally flying around on G5s to all of our sets across the country. And I will never forget it because um, we were on set. Eric and I were there, actually. And the executive producer that was the money behind the show um, and our executive producer almost, they looked like they were about to come to blows on set because it was 2007 and uh, they were pulling funding for the show. And Eric and I were like, what the hell is going on? Because our show was actually growing and, and promise. So, for example, I had just produced a show that had won the New York DMA. And I got a 4.7 rating and a 7 share. We literally won Manhattan, which is insane. And meanwhile, the show is collapsing. Well, the reason the show was collapsing, unbeknownst to Eric and I, was because the housing market was collapsing in 2007. Unbeknownst to us, that leads to what happens with the run with Bear Stearns and then ultimately the Lehman Brothers, which we just celebrated the 13th anniversary of the, um, of, uh, the Lehman collapse, of course, which kicked off Occupy Wall Street and everything that came after But in that time period, I had gone from, you know, living the American dream to literally becoming insolvent overnight. And um, my life got turned upside down, inside out. And everything that happened in the aftermath didn't make sense. And so Eric and I started asking questions, and that led to this journey.
0: So I, I want to give everybody like my layman's understanding of what happened with the crash. And then I want you to tell me what I get right and what I get wrong and and what the accurate picture is. So my understanding is you have these big financial institutions and they start doing these things called adjustable rate mortgages. It's got a ballooning rate to it. So you start out, your payments are relatively low. And then over time, uh, the, it skyrockets. And um, they were effectively... Sort of like you're alluding to, we're giving it out to people like next to no proof of income or no proof of income. Uh, They definitely shouldn't be taking the loan under any reasonable standard. And then what would happen is the financial institutions uh, that issue these mortgages, they package them together and then sell it off to another company. And so they show the profits on their books and those packages were rated as AAA, which is a really safe investment, but that's because the ratings agencies were also bought off. And then everybody was basically playing hot potato with these toxic assets. And eventually the game blew up. So do I have it right? Am I missing anything? Tell me if that's correct.
2: Um, I think that there's, a, there's an awful lot there that, uh, that's correct. But I would say that I would start this off with the uh, with the mortgage companies. Because the fraud on the securities end – doesn't happen without the fraud on the lending end mm. and so um, It's it was the uh, it was the uh, mortgage um, Lenders like AmeriQuest uh, initially which was actually the godfather of all this because they literally came out of the SNL crisis with the exact same schemes that they learned in the SNL crisis and Turn Sa- savings savings place.
0: and loans for everybody not Saturday Night Live savings and loans <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yes, of course and, uh, and so they took their fraud schemes from that and just like placed it in the mortgage market. And the reason why they did that was because they were being regulated as a savings and loan. But with mortgage lending, they weren't being regulated. So they were free to do whatever they could. And so that's where the fraud begins. Now, where it meets up with the larger financial system is when they transfer, when they transfer from a from a savings and loan into a mortgage lender, they had to give up their ability to take on deposits. And so they needed a moneyed partner in order to have money to land out. And so the warehouse lines that Wall Street supplied is what created this, this marriage, initially a convenience, um, but is what basically gave the, uh, the mortgage lenders the ability to go and lend as much as possible, as quickly as possible, at as high a rate as possible um, so that they could make their money there and then send it off to Wall Street. So so I, I think the important thing here is that it begins with the brokers on the front end who are representing the mortgage lenders. And then that fraud is what makes all the other frauds happen.
1: Mm. Um, Patrick, there are a few things that you guys do a really effective job of sort of driving home in this series. And one of them is, I think still, there's this misconception that, number one, well, some of these homeowners, it was kind of on them. You know, they were they wanted the big house, and they didn't want to do what it takes to work hard to actually earn it, so they cut a lot of corners. And two, that, um, well, some of this behavior was unethical, but, and Obama famously said this, unfortunately, it wasn't illegal, so we can't really do anything about it. Um, you really drive home the point that, This wasn't just borderline or unethical, immoral, but technically legal behavior. This was actually provably criminal behavior and fraud that virtually no one was held accountable for.
3: Like everything you do, uh, Crystal, spot on. Okay, so here's the story: President Obama lied to the American people. The Obama administration and the deceit of Eric Holder's Department of Justice. and everything that basically created the apparatus between john paul or hank paulson that was a a little bit of a slip john paulson and we'll get to that later but hank paulson and um, ben Bernanke and tim geithner it, it was all an absolute deception from politics covering for the largest criminal and conspiracy in the history of the world there were literally tens of millions of felonies that took place at every level of this pipeline And that's what we deconstruct in the con. And that's the story that the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the Miami Herald, Los Angeles Times, across the board has not told to this day. Now, some of the guys that you guys talk to are some of our heroes, for example, Matt Taibbi. I was obsessed with Matt Taibbi early in the process. And I first got to understand this awareness from inside the belly of the beast in layman's language of all of these things that he was revealing in these 10,000-word essays at the time in in Rolling Stone magazine that were basically telling me what my gut was telling me, that, wait a second, this is a dog-and-pony show, three-card Monty, that was tricking everybody into what were liar's ones, that ultimately Rick Santelli, if you guys recall, was on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange when he says, hey, why don't we take out, uh, you know, backstop the – you know the run of all of these people using their houses as ATMs to build like a second part of their partition, or you know a garage or whatever they were doing, and they're the ones who were to blame for this crisis. Which of course, in war, led to the Tea Party. That was absolute nonsense. It was the people like Rick Santelli that were covering the lies and the deception at the tables that literally were deceiving people into all of what like what Kyle just said. All of these different loan products. They were simply liar's loans. They had like, I think there was like, I don't know, there was 20 plus different types of loan products that I'm aware of that they could basically get people into loans. And now, granted, understand this. This is another huge misunderstanding of what happened during the crisis. The people that leveraged their houses, most of these people had insane equity in their houses. They owned their houses. The, the economy was stagnant. People had you know, major bills. Obviously, there was inflation in a lot of sectors. And people needed money, so these brokers would dangle out these products to use people's houses as a way to refinance to pay for, you know, lack of healthcare, lack of increase in in in, um, in uh, income, and so on and so forth, so that they use their houses as leverage to maintain life, and that's because of all of the tricks of deception that were taking place in the pipeline. They start with the broker selling faulty products that goes then to the appraisers that are hyperinflating the appraisal loans. So what we've learned in this process from the very beginning was a rolling loan knows no loss. It was literally Wall Street with $70 trillion of appetite from a global market that was looking for a place to park their capital into the housing market that was laid out for the mortgage-backed securities debacle that then turned into derivative trades that you know, turned into a 600 trillion dollar hedge that all of these incredible market makers were able to uh, manipulate behind the scenes for outcomes that were just insane. But at the very beginning, the core of this, like Eric, you know, uh, pointed out, you got guys lying, stealing, and deceiving, which are all violations of civil rights laws. What we have throughout the country is um, um, uh, deceptive acts and practices, which are felonies. They're civil rights violations based on hopa H, or I think it's pronounced HOEPA, which is Homeowner Equity Protection Act. Now, interestingly enough, and and, uh, and Kyle, the buck stopped with the Federal Reserve Chairman who was supposed to regulate these markets. Now, I'm kind of jumping ahead in the process that Alan Greenspan was warned over and over and over that there was nothing but fraud happening at this level that was constituting Fed policy in Alan Greenspan literally said, "Park it on the sidelines. I'm not going to mm-hmm. do anything about it." And then, of course, at the end, Alan Greenspan's the guy there that everybody's like listening to the wise man, right? That uh, supposedly has all the answers. And he said, "No one saw it coming." Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, knew exactly what was going on, and as a result, $29 trillion manifested from the Federal Reserve to backstop this criminality where millions upon millions of people were literally illegally foreclosed upon. And then ultimately, we're living with the same uh, situation right now with rental evictions, moratoriums, and all of that stuff that's coming down the pike. It's it's literally stuff and repeat,
2: guys. To answer that question on more of a micro level, so the incentive structures from the top down pushed the brokers on the front end who were actually writing the loans for the typical homeowner uh, you know, on, on, at, on the street level they were incentivized to push them into the most expensive loans possible. So in the best case scenario, they were incentivized to give them predatory loans. But as the the pressure mounted to make more and more of these loans, and this pressure was was real, I mean, because basically they had to hit quotas or else they were gonna be fired because if that lender didn't hit their quotas, they were going to have their warehouse lines pulled away, which which was their lifeline. And so when you have these kind of pressures and incentives, that's what creates the situation to where the pressure, when it gets to that broker level, is going to not only put you in a very expensive loan, but will do whatever they have to in order to get you into that loan. And that's where an awful lot of the most egregious felonies occurred. And it was happening time and again, thousands upon thousands of times in every state in the entire country because there was such an enormous amount of pressure to fill their quotas and in so doing, making the most amount of money for themselves as they possibly could.
1: And when you say they were willing to do whatever it took, we're not just talking about like, you know, sort of a little misleading to people, not really focusing on how these payments are going to blow up. You found instances of actual forgeries. You found instances where they uh, presented the homeowners with, you know, they told them that the loan was going to be one thing. And then the documents they give them say something else. And they promise, oh, oh, we're going to fix it. Don't worry. But they obviously don't fix it. You found instances of outright fraud, not just sort of like manipulation and deceit. Eric, could you talk a little bit about that?
3: Um, sorry, I thought you said Eric. I'll I'll respond to that. Um, Did you say Eric or
1: did you? I did, but any go ahead, Patrick. Oh no no no!
2: I I had a little bit of a glitch on the uh, on the thing, so I didn't hear you. (laughs) Okay, I'll go ahead. uh,
1: question. go ahead, Patrick. Or what? Go
3: ahead, Crystal. Sorry, do you want to ask? Did you did you hear the question, Eric?
2: Uh, No, it's like I, I there was like a glitch on my computer and everything stopped for a second.
1: That's fine. Go ahead, Patrick. You jump in.
3: Okay um crystal again it's just remarkable i am so happy to to talk to this about somebody who's uh, as aware of really pretty much everything and it's amazing how this isn't really common knowledge around the united states because an incredible journalist by the name of michael hudson um who is currently the editor of the icij the international consortium of investigative journalists and and those guys are responsible for the um the panama papers and the recent fencen files that came out uh with buzzfeed last september which is extraordinary Um, He did a book um, in collaboration with work he was doing at the Los Angeles Times at about this time period called The Monster. And what he found was that they have really what they call fix-it shops, right? Where brokers would lift W-2s, they would change incomes, they would change all of the information to be able to fit the borrower into the loans that they could get approved. And they literally would white out, They would forge signatures they would do this not in a handful of cases unbelievable high percentage of cases particularly in low-income neighborhoods because at that time you know and if you listen to the other misnomer in history you know blame the victim as they always do um, a lot of folks at that time period were using what they called Community Reinvestment Reinvest- Act. Of course, all of the libertarians and the Republicans after the crash were like, oh yeah, we, we lent to poor peoples because the government made us do it. It was the likes of Ameriquest who escaped jurisdiction of the Office of the Thrift Supervision after the SNL crisis, which was phase one of this stuff uh, that has created the world that we live in. And we're now on you know, chapter four of this insane criminality. And they would literally just hocus pocus, fill in the numbers to get people approved and do it as fast as they could because they got paid to do that. They were getting commissions to do that. And you got to just ask yourself, well, wait a second, why would they lie, steal, and cheat to be able to, um, you know, jeopardize their jobs? They were getting rewarded to do that. Now, the way this all plays out ultimately is that, and this is is also not common knowledge, which is just insane to me, um, but that Investigative journalism, heroic investigative journalism by uh, Michael Hudson, ultimately led to 50 state AGs to pull the ring around this incredible um, mammoth fraud institute that at the time was bigger than Countrywide. A lot of people know the name of Angelo Mozilla. This guy, Roland Arnall was bigger than Angelo Mozilla. And ultimately, they created a 49 state, the largest um, class action in history by um this United States of America, larger than the tobacco settlement, where they got um, AmeriQuest in the crosshairs for this predatory lending. It was a $498 million um, uh, class action that all 48 states achieved uh, and convicted in, I think it was 2004, five ish range. But here's the whole thing in a nutshell. So, Roland Arnall, as it turns out, was George Bush's largest contributor. Bigger than Exxon, bigger than the fossil fuel industry, bigger than the military industrial complex that the Bush administration is. so. Uh, obviously, we most of us understand their involvement. Roland Nall was the largest contributor to the Bush campaign. And after all of this stuff went down in the same process, instead of sending this guy to prison, they made him the ambassador to the Netherlands. And he died a, a multi-billionaire.
0: Wow, that's insane. Um, so let me ask you this, uh, and I'll ask this to Eric Obama bailed out Wall Street. Uh, Trump destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We never brought back Glass-Steagall, which separated commercial banking and investment banking. Is all this stuff still going on? And if it is, has it evolved in any way?
2: Uh, yeah. So, so fundamentally, nothing has changed. Primarily because. The exact same situation with the regulatory agencies has not really changed. The only thing that, that was out there that was actually being any kind of a thorn in the side of the industry was the CFPB. And even then, it was relatively small fry stuff that they were taking care of. And then, of course, as you mentioned, you know, Trump has, has done it did a pretty good job of uh, torpedoing that. But beyond the fact that the regulatory agencies have been completely turned around and defunded to a, to a point to where they're basically feckless and the only people that they're actually looking at are consumers at this point, is that law enforcement has never, ever, you know, looked in the right direction as far as this um, type of criminality has concerned. And that has not changed at all. Now, Dodd-Frank did come in and it did try to do a bunch of things, but by the time it actually got passed a lot of it was, was, was basically gutted uh, by the time it actually got, got to pass. But even still, once it's passed, you still have to enforce it. And if it's not being enforced, then what good is it doing? And so I think that what we are living in is, a, uh, is, a, is, is basically a situation to where everything that fed into the collapse of 2008 has not changed on the regulatory and and law enforcement end, but on the banking and industry end, what has changed is that they know how to get around things a hell of a lot better now than they did back then. They know how to protect themselves a lot better now than they did back then. And so I think that that's what we're dealing with right now. And I think that's why we're seeing so many issues and so many different types of of, of lending as well, because it's not just mortgages now. I mean, it's, you know, student loans, it's auto lending, it's any kind of lending that's out there. And, you know, and we're not to CDOs and and derivatives yet, but they are making derivatives out of virtually any type of lending that there could possibly be. There are derivatives that are out there that are based on hamburgers you know, because they know that a certain amount of, uh, of beef is getting, is being sold to McDonald's at a certain rate. And so they're basically creating derivatives on hamburgers based on, Oh, how, how many people are eating hamburgers in July? I mean, so any single time that there's any kind of lending, it's going into like all sorts of different, you know, bonds and secondary market, you know, type of type of type of situations. And it's, uh, and it's just, uh, it's just, it's actually far worse, far less regulated and in much more exotic places than it was before.
1: Well, and Patrick, I think something that everybody can understand is that, um, no one paid a price for these crimes. Um, and to the contrary, many of the worst criminals became even more fabulously wealthy. So why wouldn't you do it again? Um, why Why wouldn't you, you know, in gay, whether it was the same schemes or new schemes, there's zero deterrence from, you know, repeating another sort of fraudulent scam on the American public that it might ultimately be terrible for your bank. But what do you care if you're the one who's getting rich?
3: Again, you always nail it, Crystal. Uh, The the fact is, you know, I watched your stuff on Elizabeth Holmes the other day and it just absolutely – put a smile on my face like right now because you you know elizabeth uh, holmes was fraud and there's like people out there like oh wait this is a sexist situation because you know she's a woman she wanted to be steve uh jobs and blah 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 when in fact it was just control fraud which brings me to the most elucidating point of this whole thing and our mentor on this whole project is a gentleman by the name of william k black and i hopefully between this um, you know, opportunity and, and, and we domino this thing, I won't be happy and know that we beat this, this insane amount of deception and corruption until there's literally a memorial on the Washington Mall, somewhere near adjacent to Jefferson and Lincoln, because that's how important William K. Black is. I discovered William K. Black because I just happened to be channel surfing, I call it 2009-ish, and all of this crap was falling on my head and nothing made sense. And then suddenly I happened to watch this television program on Sunday morning uh, at that point, This guy was doing all of the um, um, interviews with the likes of Matt Taibbi and Eve Smith and some of these other people talking about the consequences of, the, uh, of uh, the collapse and what it all meant. And I came across a gentleman by the name of William K. Black on Bill Moyers, who started talking about control fraud. Now, William K. Black was the lead investigator for the Office of Thrift Supervision and the savings and loan crisis, where it was One 180th size, the size of what ultimately happened in the 2008 Great Financial Crisis. And he created, uh, with uh, all of the heroes of that era, when we actually had conviction of law enforcement in in financial regulation, they got 30,000 criminal referrals for the fraud that was happening at that time. they ultimately got 1,000 convictions of the high-level guys. And a lot of people out there may remember the name of Charles Keating. He was at that time presiding over the largest bankruptcy in history that targeted widows in this grand scheme. And ultimately, that's where uh, Alan Greenspan came out of, was working with Charles Keating. So instead of actually going down the tubes like Charles Keating did to go to prison, Alan Greenspan winds up as the Federal Reserve Chairman, right? So is there any correlation to how this stuff works? Eric and um, a gentleman who we reveal in episode one of the con, Pastor Reverend Harrison, who happened to be a detective um, from the Akron PD before he became a pastor in Addie Polk's church, who was our kind of incredible domino to this, this entire story of, of insane corruption that targeted the most, the weakest amongst us. He said that what do you do when you take the cops off the beat? The criminals take over. And that's the world we live in, Crystal.
0: So uh, let's make this, let's kitchen table this for people. Tell me the story of an elderly woman who you document in this piece. Uh, tell us the story of Addie.
2: Addie was a, uh, was a uh, at the time of her first loan that she got, was an 89 year old widow um, from uh, Akron, Ohio. Uh, her and her husband had uh, moved up to Akron from the South in order to work in the rubber industry. And, uh, you know, at the time it was like the first time that the rubber factories had opened the doors uh, to African-American people um, in the country. And so and so they came up. They got their jobs. In fact, Robert Polk ended up getting two jobs at two different factories uh, so that he could purchase a home for he and his wife. And they did so, and they actually owned it outright. By I think about, I see, I think they went and purchased it sometime like around 1970 something, and I think it was owned outright by 1985. And uh, Robert Polk ended up. Uh, Robert Polk died um, right around 1993, and then Addie um, was, was was left alone. About two years after that, um, she started getting she started getting, uh, uh, calls in order to, uh, you know, from, from people who were trying to give her a loan. And, uh, she had, a, uh, you know, she had been, you know, very good with her money from, from all accounts. Um, everybody says that she was like extremely, you know, on top of her finances and, and, and knew every cent that went out of her purse and, and what have you. And, uh, and she was in a situation to where like she, I think they needed a uh, shingles on her roof and her porch fixed, Uh, Mostly because there's like city codes, you know, that that mean that you have to keep up with those things and and, uh, or else you can get a tax fine or something along those lines. So. uh, okay, so. So, yeah, so magically, um, uh, so magically, a broker appears on her on her front doorstep telling her that that uh, that they can get her you know, a loan that can help pay for these things. Now, interestingly enough, this is something that came out a little bit later is that we interviewed uh, uh, Patricia McCoy and Kathleen Engel who talked about how a lot of these uh, people would find out who was vulnerable in these situations. They'd go to city hall and they would see which homes had uh, complaints against them that would potentially end up in a tax fee violation. And so then they would go and they would find that information, go to those homes, and appear as if they were angels from on high, you know, coming down to save the day. And People this very right, and this very likely, you know, w- was something that contributed to this particular situation. So, so they come in, swoop in, and they say, "Hey, you need your roof fixed, you need your porch fixed, you know, we're, you know, we can we can get your refi and 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 yada yada yada," and so that happens. Now, once that happens, I believe that first loan was a a GMAC loan. Um, Now you're in the system. Now they know that you are a target. And then I think that the next few loans after that was from Countrywide. Now, this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy, because either one, she was becoming victim of predatory refinancing on the part of Countrywide, you know, giving 30-year refinances to a 90-some-year-old woman. I mean, you know, the math doesn't work out very well right there. And that's the best-case scenario. Now, what we have some evidence for that we discuss in the con is that she may have also been a victim at this point when the countrywide loans started to come on of, uh, of what's called straw buying, where somebody – in this particular case, unfortunately within her own church congregation, um, got the information that they needed in order to basically act as her in a financial transaction and get her into these loans. And something that comes up in the sheriff's call cards as the sheriff started to post her house for foreclosure a few years later, was that she had no idea as to why they were posting notices of foreclosure that she was on her, on time with her payment that, 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 or, or actually not even that, that she, you know, whatever the case was, but, um, but she she said said that. Yeah, she owned her home and that she didn't understand why, why she was being posted. And in this kind of further sort of, Um, indicates that she may have been a victim of straw buying, especially given that her records were found at the church by Pastor Harrison, who was doing an investigation because he was brought, he was literally brought in um, as a former Akron police officer to be pastor of this church because they had been dealing with a a scourge of uh, uh, of corruption occurring within it. And so he's right in to clean it up. And so he's basically acting in that capacity. And so she keeps on basically putting her cries for help out there. It's like saying, you know, this isn't, this shouldn't be happening. This, you know, I own my home. What are you doing? And then finally she gets a uh, notice of eviction. And I think that was the notice of eviction that ultimately put her over, over the edge because I mean, when you try to place yourself in, in Abby's place, where you believe you own your home. It's the home that you and your husband worked for your entire lives. You've never known any other place. And somebody's telling you that you don't own your home, that you're being foreclosed on, when you know in your mind that that's not true. And then furthermore, you're now being evicted, And nobody, nobody is It's coming to help. The government isn't helping the, you know, you go, you you, you tell the sheriff's department that they're making a mistake and they're not listening, you know. And and I think that it was this this just this madness and this pressure that she was under that on that fateful day of October 2nd, um, that she uh, turned a gun on herself Um, rather than facing eviction and being out on the street as a 92 year old woman. Oh. she decided to take matters into her, her own hands.
1: Oh, and uh, unbelievable. She,
2: she died uh, in March of 2009.
1: And to think that no one who was involved with any of that has faced any consequences. I mean from the beginning she's preyed upon and that's another thing that you highlight in the con is like it wasn't like people were out looking for these products, looking for these loans. They were getting knocks on their door. From people who had reason to believe this was a vulnerable individual who had needs who they might be able to manipulate and then in this instance some evidence and this is what her pastor believes that her identity was just straight up stolen and she was just outright defrauded and her signature uh forged by just a an absolute con artist and also indications that this was not a unique instance. And the level, I mean, just the tragedy of that is horrific. Um, Patrick, I want to know, what do you see right now currently in the housing market? Because as you know, one thing we've been tracking on breaking points with some concern is uh, prices on houses are going way up. Uh, Now prices on apartments are also going way up. Partly, the news media is telling us that the sort of professional managerial class did very well during the pandemic and their values changed. Now they want to move out to where there's more room. And so they're bidding things up. Um, partly, it seems like permanent capital is is getting involved in a big way in buying up these houses so that, you know, places like BlackRock can become essentially America's landlord. But I wonder, as as someone who studied the last housing bubble, what you sort of see inside of these rising prices?
3: Again, thank you, Crystal. Um, <laughs> the timing is extraordinary. So I'm going to do a, a. Thank God this is long form, and you guys are bright and you can stay with this sort of thing. I've got I got to throw a lot. I got to throw the kitchen sink at you to to bring this full circle because it's 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 what we're all going through right now. Um, but there's a little bit of a caveat to your point that nobody was held accountable. And see, this is the great, almost divine. Uh, sort of presence of Addie Polk in her tragedy. So we had been studying this stuff a long time prior to this. And I was really always going to the top down. I was dealing with the C-suite guys, like these superheroes, like Michael Winston at Countrywide and Richard Boone at Citigroup, which I hope we have a chance to talk about if we have enough time, but obviously it's a big story. Um, and everything they did to try to shut this down. So the likes of what you just described to Addie Polk wouldn't happen. Uh, and every single one who did the right thing got thwarted by this corruption. Now, in terms of it being relevant to right now, I want to point out that there's a crazy situation happening. In actually, let me start it with this one. So, Addy Polk's tragedy opened up the door to the ultimate revelation, Crystal and um, and Kyle and Sagar and Matt Kadi in the world. That so this is what happened, and everybody needs to understand the name Mark Gan. So what ultimately happened was Eric discovered Addy Paul. He was literally 50 yards, within 200 feet away of his offices in Akron, Ohio, when he relocated from Los Angeles back to Akron, and there's, that's part of a crazy story. But ultimately he discovered Addy, and he called me one day, and he said, we got to tell the story. What do you think about it? And I was like, well, of course, because we're looking for building this from the bottom up. Because Eric had the prescient notion years before. He said, why isn't this racketeering? Why isn't this RICO? Why is it this, um, you know, racketeering uh, influenced corrupt organization laws that we used for the mob? And I kept thinking to myself, well, wait a second, based on everything we're discovering, that's exactly right. So we discover Addie Polk. We discover all of this horrific situation. She was targeted by the brokers because the system was set up where they could go find elderly women, uh, widows, African-American, who were the absolute targets of this thing to start it off with. And then they got the rest of the world, including myself. And um, that was all intent, contrary to what uh, <laughs> what Barack Obama told, I believe, uh, Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes when he said what, they, what Wall Street may have done was unethical, but it wasn't criminal. That was a lie. And he knew it, by the way. And what ultimately Adi Polk led us to was I'll never forget this. One of our crack producers reached out to this um, Sheriff Don Fothery of the Akron PD department. Summit County PD department. And the guy didn't want to be interviewed. He didn't want to talk about the situation. He felt guilt. he had already told the story to The New Yorker, which is where Eric found this, and he didn't want to go on camera. And our colleague, Alex Tennant, literally went and knocked on this guy's door incessantly to tell him, we just need you to tell us the story because we got to do what this recreate for our story. And uh, so he finally reluctantly agrees. And at the end of his interview, he's taken off his, his uh, mic and he said, are you guys familiar with, uh, Mark Dan and the Summit County task force and what they pulled off in the David Willen case? I'm like, no. And so he said, you might want to call this number. And he has me call this guy who is, um, the head sheriff of the Summit County task force. And one, lo and behold, I find out I'm on the phone with Eric and we're on, on this way to an interview with this, this tremendous woman, Becky Weesey, who also was a, a white woman who went through the same problems. Um, and I'm reading through this article that was in um, the, uh, the Plain Dealer, the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And I'm reading through it and it says Mark Dan and the Akron Task Force got this guy Dave Willen on RICO. So I'm like, what? And we call the, uh, the investigators. I end up talking to this guy, Tom Murphy, who is the salt of the earth as they come, American hero, the white collar task force of Summit County, Ohio did their job that we the people in this country depend on. They put together a uh, secret location, a compound. They started diving in because Mark Dan, the Attorney General of Ohio, had the wherewithal and in the, in the commitment, which is exactly what this all comes down to. People in positions of power who we the people depend on to actually have integrity with the law, put together this task force to investigate what actually was taking shape. They figure out the whole crime. And then they pull the noose around this guy Dave Willen, and they get him on RICO. They get him on RICO, and as it turns out, Crystal and Sagar, i am mean, sorry, Crystal and uh, Kyle—it um, was the only RICO conviction that we you know took place for this crime. And it was a regional crime. This guy Dave Willen, and it was hundreds—I think sixty million dollars. I think was the ultimate crime that was tens of millions of dollars. It wasn't twenty-nine trillion that Wall Street got away with. But it was at the exact dimensions and scope that everybody on Wall Street was playing. Jamie Mm -hmm. Dimon, Lloyd Blankfein, um, Brian Moynihan at Bank of America, uh, you know, John Mack at at, uh, Morgan Stanley, all of which got trillions and trillions of dollars in in free money for destroying the likes of Addy Paul. And as it comes full circle to right now, there's a gentleman in Miami by the name of Bruce Jacobs. Terrific, terrific defense attorney that's going to the mat right now, Crystal and Kyle, He's taking on Bank of America and Bank of New York Mellon and, um, and uh, Chase for all of the fraud and the corruption that they have gotten away with in the courts. And he's got three women of color that are as bright women as I've ever seen. In one case, um, one of his clients is a woman who uh, her husband was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. She never missed a payment on her um, on her uh, loan. But this stuff is so corrupt, it sweeps up people who had never missed a payment, let alone all of the corruption and the stuff that we talked about with um, with uh, straw buying and the rest of it. And he right now is trying to bring the attention of the world and the media who doesn't know this exists. We're talking, I think, probably millions upon millions of illegal foreclosures that David Dan covered, guys, that you guys know really well mm-hmm. in the aftermath of what was called chain of title. It gone, gone way beyond that. But it's the same corollary. Addie Polk to these three um, women of color right now in Miami that are being foreclosed upon. And Bruce Jacobs is last man standing, trying to prevent that from happening in the courts right now based on bringing RICO uh, investigations and uh, hopefully convictions in the civil courts against Bank of America, Bank of New York, Mellon and um, and uh, uh, Chase. Now, the last thing I'll say upon that line, and this is because uh, we've learned so much about this odyssey and there's so much more we could discuss, obviously, but I do want to make this point right now. The reason the courts and the justices have been uh, allowing this criminality to take place is literally because of what they call privilege. They're not investigating the fraud. They're not allowing it in the court. And a two-year-old, or I should say a sixth grader, have shown how the fraud is being able to be elucidated I'm telling you, it would overwhelm the court system. The courts are allowing criminal enterprises to steal people's homes, particularly minorities and the most vulnerable. That's happening in this country right now. Wow.
0: I I guess the reason why I'm so surprised by that is because we all know with the political contributions, which are basically legalized bribes, they go to the politicians. And so I don't like it, but I, I can see the connection and why it is that Congress might end up or the executive branch of the government might end up uh, defending or, or supporting or bailing out these various corrupt institutions. But for the judicial branch to be involved like that, that's like that's a real shock to the system because they're supposed to be the ones who are not impacted by that sort of stuff. You know what I mean, Crystal?
1: Yeah. 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 What is the incentive there, Eric? Uh, Why is it that the court system, you know, doesn't find it or the judicial system doesn't find it in their interest to pursue these cases?
2: Uh, A little bit out of my expertise, but I will uh, I will uh, be able to say a couple of things about that. A lot of it is cultural, right? I mean, people in the legal profession tend to trust other people in the legal profession. And the way that the system is set up right now, it's very, very difficult for somebody to find foreclosure defense. Bruce Jacobs just happens to be one of the very few that are out there. and in, in in California, it's virtually illegal. You know they've made it almost impossible for for a homeowner to get a foreclosure defense uh, lawyer in that particular case. and so and so you have this phenomena of uh, pro se litigants. And a pro se litigant, no matter how informed, no matter how astute you are, you're simply not going to get the same traction. You're not going to get the same level of listening um, from the judge as opposed to a lawyer, you know, who's sitting on the other side. And so an awful lot of it is just simply cultural. But then there's other parts of it where where quite often, you know, there is a financial tie. Um, with, uh, with, uh, with some judges, and I'm not going to be um, specific here for, uh, for, for some uh, clear reasons, but, uh, but there's been cases that we've seen, many, like disturbing amount of cases that we've seen where the judges are making these judgments uh, in situations where it would potentially impact investments that are going into their pension funds, for instance. And so there's situations where it feels as though there it's a clear case where a judge should be recusing themselves of these situations. But because there's so much there's so many cases that are coming through the system at any one time, especially back in the day, you know, post 2008, that there was just there's just, you know, I mean, they were just cranking them through as fast as they could and, and there was no for like little pleasantries, like recuse yourself from a situation where you're personally benefiting by not allowing a person to show their evidence.
1: Right. And then, as you said, the regulatory agencies have been, um, you know, cut down to the bone so that they're unable to actually perform any enforcement. I think it's really important for people to watch the con, go and watch the episodes, not only because it's really critical to understand what actually happened, the lies that we were told and continue to be told, It's really critical to understand um, what's happening right now and where risks continue to be. The fact that you have Wall Street that, you know, felt emboldened by the fact that there was no accountability. They got richer than ever. And even, you know, one thing we've been covering this week is there seems to be some similar situations unfolding in China right now um, with their largest property developer Evergrande that is on the brink of collapse. Chinese government has asked themselves, is this company too big to fail? Are we going to bail them out? Are there going to be any actual consequences? So if you don't understand the specifics of what happened with the housing crisis, you're not going to understand our economy today. You're not going to understand Wall Street today. You're not going to understand our political system today. So that's my pitch for everybody to go watch the documentary. Um, I did. It's great. And uh, Patrick, if you could just tell people, where they can find it and where you'd like them to go and check it out.
3: Okay. And I'm going to squeeze this one last point. in. For, first of all, you can find it everywhere. We had to work around the machine because the machine is basically the board of directors at HBO and Netflix and all of the rest of them are the same guys that we expose Goldman Sachs and, um, uh, Chase did the mergers and acquisitions deal of, uh, HBO time Warner. And of course they're up to their eyeballs and this stuff. And as it turns out, BlackRock is the largest, um, um, uh, a board member of Netflix, and there's uh, there's problems with this whole thing across the board because of the corruption. Uh, you can find it on uh, Apple TV. We're doing this workaround, the self distribution model, just like you guys. You can find it on Apple TV. You can find it on um, um, uh, Xbox. You can find it on Amazon, Amazon Prime. You can find it on uh, uh, Microsoft, and I believe there'll be others. But I want to make this one last point, Crystal, because it's it's absolutely crucial to what. Um, you guys are covering day in and day out. So I got a call yesterday from a police officer who works in the uh, Dallas uh, uh, Department of Corrections. He works in the prison system in Dallas, Texas. He himself went through the same insanity. uh, He's trying to fight in the courts based on this illegal uh, fraud uh, from servicers and and, uh, uh, law firms, what they call foreclosure mills, and the courts have of Dallas. And, and, and he's a law enforcement agency who's been trying to fight this for a long time. He called me yesterday and he told me that the evictions that are happening in Texas are incredible. Cops with AR-15s are showing up to throw people out of their uh, rental uh, apartments. And as it turns out, and this is the step and repeat, and this is a whole other side of this category that we haven't discussed. Basically, the states have gotten 47, 48 billion dollars to basically create rental relief. A lot of the uh, uh, um, uh, landlords have actually gotten that relief. A lot of the people that need that relief have not been able to work themselves through the bureaucracy. Maybe there are people that don't have a lot of um, you know, education wherewithal to be able to work through the paperwork, to be able to make their cases. And there's billions of dollars sitting on the sidelines right now while literally the police are coming in with AR-15s and evicting families and saying, it's time for you to get to the streets. And ultimately, the people and the landlords are selling those houses at high, high rates based on what we expose in the con to the likes mm. of BlackRock, who are or intersected with Ever, uh, Evergrande. And it looks to me like both, and I think the market is through the roof today, that uh, you know the, the uh, Central Bank of China and of course our Federal Reserve, they just continue to throw trillions of dollars at this problem to allow this stuff to continue. We've got to stop it. The truth is in the con. It's the truth that the whole system has hidden. I bear, I pray that everybody in this country the millions upon millions of victims who don't understand what happened. Watch the con, and we've got to come together to create a civil rights-like movement to purge corruption. We've got to do it now.
0: Everybody watch the con. Patrick Lovell and Eric Vaughn, thank you so much, guys. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks
1: for the
3: opportunity.
1: So that was Patrick Lovell and Eric Vaughn. And I have to tell you, um, there were so many things that I learned from this docuseries, and they really do start with Addie Polk who is this 90-plus-year-old woman who kills herself because she loses her home. And then you come to find out that it may not have even been just that she was misled and she was preyed upon, but that they actively stole her identity, forged her signature, and defrauded her. And that this was happening in case after case after across America. And Obama has the gall to come out in line and say, no crimes committed here, nothing illegal. And that no one ultimately pays a price. They yeah. get away with it.
0: So so there are two layers to that. Number one, yeah, what you're saying is true. I have no idea what the numbers are in terms of how many instances of just the outright fraud there was, like yeah. you're describing with Hattie. There's probably a lot of that, right? But even if you take—and they mentioned this a few times—even if you take the kindest interpretation of events, then it would still be criminal because it would still be predatory loans yeah. that were made uh, you know, without any— uh, proof of income or verification, they package the the mortgages together, say they're AAA because the rating agencies are bought when they're not AAA, then yep. they pass them around like hot potatoes, just to say on their balance sheets, look, I made a profit.
1: Yes. And so on mm. one end, the homeowners get fucked. And on the other end, who ends up with these t- these terrible, you know, this junk that they've packaged together and pretended is AAA, disproportionately, it was like pension funds. It was right. like, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, central states... Pest pension funds and, you know, firefighters and teachers and whoever who get caught holding the bag that got sold this bill of goods. So when the hot potato eventually explodes, overwhelmingly, it's the very working class people who were preyed upon to start with who also threw their pension p- funds. They're the ones that are getting screwed on the other end. So just all the way around, Wall Street made out. They got away with it.
0: So uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers went down. And then the government panicked. They just threw all the money they had at Wall Street. They got bailed. They were bailed out under Bush. They were bailed out under Obama. There were no strings attached. So the same companies that were committing the fraud and the same companies that made the terrible decisions that tanked the global economy – they got bailed out, no strings attached, and then their CEOs got bonuses. Yes. You remember when this happened? Yes. It was a huge scandal because we, we they said, we got to bail them out because or else the entire world economy is going to collapse. Bailed them out, no strings attached, Then the same guys who bankrupted their companies and crashed the world economy got bonuses. And then they had the nerve to say, you remember what their, their reaction was? They said, we have to do this in order to keep the talent. But, talent. maintain our talent.
1: Look at that talent.
0: Are you out of your mind? It doesn't work like that at any other job in America. You fail repeatedly, and then the government rushes in, bails you out with taxpayer money, and then you get a raise? You get more money? And that's the way it worked. And the reason why this is the way it went down, and there's no accountability, is because of the political bribes. Yes. It's, it's legal. A bribery is legal in this country. All these companies, all these big financial institutions give money to Democrats and Republicans, and it's I scratch your back, you scratch mine. They run for office, they turn around when they're in office, and they bail them out. They deregulate them. They look the other way as they commit mm-hmm. fraud. They do systemic fraud. Bernie Sanders famously said it in the 2015 uh, Democratic primary that fraud was the business model on Wall Street. 100%. And what did uh, Hillary Clinton said? I went there and told them to cut it out. Cut it out. I told them to cut it out. Mm-hmm. No, cut it out ain't gonna work.
1: She got paid, what, a quarter of a million dollars to give them that little speech?
0: That's right. And you, what you have to do is you have to bring back Glass-Steagall. You have to regulate them effectively. I would ban the adjustable rate mortgages, the ballooning rate mortgages. It should just be 30-year fixed and there should be... Obviously, stringent standards in order to give out the loans and whatnot. But no, to your point, a lot of these wealthy people today who are in the top 1%, they're not adding any value to the economy. No, They're the people who are pushing the numbers around on a computer screen and and coming up with these gross financial instruments and packages that don't add any value and are really just fake and are going to blow up eventually in everybody's faces. They said we're in a bigger bubble now than we were in 2007, 2008. Do you have any idea how scary of a concept that is? Because I graduated into that broken economy. That's the year I graduated was 2010, which was arguably the peak of the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession. It was probably oh nine, But I, I was like, oh, nobody has a job. Nobody knows what to do. Everything's mm-hmm. fake. We're in, like, Great Depression 2.0. Imagine what it's going to be like now. I mean, we already have COVID. But God forbid these kids graduate now into COVID. It's mm-hmm. terrible. But want an economic crash on top of that? Well, get ready.
1: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the uh, Glass-Steagall point is really, really important. And I don't want to gloss over that because— After the Great Depression, all of these reforms were put in place to protect people, to make the banking system basically boring, you know? Right, yeah. And so at that time, they separate. First of all—
0: Commercial and investment banking.
1: They actually looked into the criminality, and people actually went to jail for their crimes within the banking system. I welcome their hatred, FTRs. I welcome their hatred. That That was the moment. And they put into place this really critical protection, which is Glass-Steagall, which separates just the normal like commercial banking of- you From investment in deposit, banking, from maybe, the casino like, gamblers. From taking that money and then speculating with it, with all of these exotic instruments and products. So Clinton gets rid of that. And when they, after this crash, when everyone's like, you know, anybody who's looking at this is like, maybe it wasn't such a great idea. To take these breaks off and take the separation away. No, no, no. We're going to make some half measures instead. We're not going to we don't want to go that far. And again, that why are they reluctant to put Glass-Steagall back into place? Why will they never, ever do that? It's again because of the political corruption look, Obama came into office on a wave of Wall Street cash. Like, the grassroots money was awesome. And that was, you know, an important part of his victory as well. But he got more Wall Street money than anyone um, and brought these guys into the administration. Same sorts of people who were there under the Clinton administration. And then at a critical moment when the economy collapses and He's there with a majority in the House and a supermajority in the Senate and can do whatever he wants with it, completely whiffs, and his Justice Department holds no one accountable. And if you want to understand our politics today, there is a direct line between that failure and that moment and how screwed up things are right now.
0: There's a great quote I heard about Obama, change on the outside, continuity on the inside. He was the master of optics. He was the master of making people think like – I'm with you guys. And then to your point, if he's taking all this money from Wall Street, well, that's probably why he bailed him out. Probably why the regulation was a joke and you could loophole so big, you could drive a Mack truck through them. And that's why, you know, the first first time Obama was in the news after his presidency, what was it for? Giving a $400,000 speech to Wall Street. That's mm-hmm. the very I
1: first. I was thinking Richard Branson. Uh, no, that was, or whatever. that
0: was there too. <laughs> but the very first story post-presidency was $400,000 speech.
1: Same story, really. Just two different versions of the same story. Like, he's That's thrown right. in with wealth. And the other thing that he's thrown in with that IRMI Osei Frimpong always points out is. It is in his interest now to make sure that nothing good happens because if something better happens under a Democratic president now than happened right. under him. That's why you hold back looks, Bernie. That looks bad for him and his legacy. Right. If we get single payer health care, well, that makes Obamacare look terrible, small and pathetic, yeah. mm-hmm. which it was, yeah. and yep. which ultimately, you know, just bolstered the private insurers, health insurers even more. So it's in his interest to keep us from having nice things, which is That's exactly a very right. sad trajectory from the original. Promise of real change,
0: and then you get the fake populist Trump, who deregulated further, cut taxes for the rich, mm-hmm. destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's all—it's all a sham.
1: Yeah, there you go. But to understand the details of that sham, watch the con. Highly recommend it. Um, the it's told on a compelling human level where you can really understand from the bottom up what was done to the American people.
0: That's exactly right. And subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack so you get the video and you get it a day earlier. Love y'all.
1: Have a good week, guys. See you back here next week.